Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Radio Storytelling Showcase on WCRX for spring of 2022. I'm Dave Berner, Associate Professor in the Communications Department, Radio Program at Columbia College, Chicago. The Radio Storytelling class is an audio content class that focuses on narrative nonfiction stories told through the magic of radio and good writing. This semester, we have wonderful personal stories ranging from love, careers, cringeworthy relationships, and even bras. All of the students worked hard on these projects, and all will be credited at the end of the show. Welcome to the Radio Storytelling Showcase on WCRX. Enjoy the stories. I loved Dolphin Lake Pool. It's one of the many joyous parts of my childhood that I can remember pretty clearly. It's interesting how I don't really remember things that clearly. Not because it wasn't great, it just feels like it's so far away and the details, they start to get fuzzy. Well, Dolphin Lake Pool is something that I can't forget too quickly because I loved to swim. Oh my gosh, when I say loved, I mean loved. Like I could spend hours in the pool with my brothers, with my friends. I want to say that when we'd go to the pool, which was five minutes from our house, sometimes my neighbors would be there or maybe we would invite them. We're driving to the pool. We have our bathing suits on, our towels packed. We're getting out of the car and you can just hear screams and laughter and parents and the diving, not the diving instructor. There wasn't a diving instructor there. The the lifeguard. Yeah, the lifeguard. And you could hear the lifeguard. And we're running down the steps and we get to the little door and the little door is blue. It's a baby blue and it's cool. And you know in that moment, like we're so close to getting to swim. We sign in, we have our little cards that have our pictures on them. Of course, we were so proud to take those pictures. <laughs> it's so funny to think of now. It's like this flimsy little card where my brothers say goodbye to me, they go, through the boys way and we go through the women's and we're going around these corners and it's this baby blue cool tile and you have to shower of course before you get into the pool and so we're showering as fast as we can and there is this light it's like the light at the end of the tunnel but it's not that dramatic but as a child it felt that dramatic it's like I gotta get out there to the light. And I'm turning the corner and there it is. There it is in all its glory, this beautiful pool. I can't even tell you how large it was this moment. It probably seemed so big to me and was probably tiny. Here's the pool deck and these beautiful white and blue lounge chairs. We find our chair and put our towels down. Our mom is slathering sunscreen on us oh mom that's enough sunscreen please let me go and we were jumping into the pool okay i'm saying jumping but we didn't jump you, know, you gotta like dip your toes in there because it's a little too cold and then you get in and you're like oh and then but then after a couple minutes you're fine and you can just swim and swim and do handstands and hold your breath 
underwater and see who can do it the longest. By the way, I always won. Yes. Um, and I took such pride because I was the girl and I could hold my breath under the water longer than the boys. And then we played and played in the water and it's time to get snacks. And oh my gosh, the snacks. That was such a good part of going to the pool. I mean, we always ate so healthy at home. And so you'd walk up these steps. There was about 12 steps and you're kind of cold, but you have your towel around you and you get up to the concession and our mom lets us pick anything we want. And of course, I'm either getting nachos with cheese or I'm getting a salted soft pretzel with cheese. And of course I've got to get candy. So I'm going to get sour straws. I mean, red or blue, those are the only options. And then you have to get a slushie. I'm not sure if our mom let us get a slushie every time, but for the most part, she was a nice mom, and so she would let us have the slushie. And we'd enjoy our salty and <laughs> savory snacks and just look out in the water, and it was like the most perfect moments, the most perfect pure joy moments. And we'd stay there until it get dark. We'd be in the pool, and it's time to get out. And we try to stay in at the very last moment until they're like, okay, kids, you really got to go. And also, like, I'm done with my shift and I need to go home. I'm not as excited about being here as you are, clearly. So that's the end of the pool day. And it's amazing. And now I'm thinking about my life today. It's pretty great. Yet those moments of pure joy, I feel that I hadn't felt that in a while. If I could recreate that now... What would it look like and how would I do it? Moments of pure joy that just make you laugh and happy and feel like you're floating and like there's no worries in the world? Maybe. You know what? I think that might be my goal for this summer is to have some pure joy like I did when I was eight years old doing handstands in the pool, beating my brothers and my neighbors in holding your water, holding your water? Holding your breath underwater contests and eating soft pretzels with cheese. It was early in the morning. I was in the men's room in Columbia College, Chicago. There was a poem on the wall. It was written above the urinal. Corporations would prefer if you, my friend, were insecure. I grew up in uncertain times, and I was dealing with uncertain emotions. I wrote poetry in high school as a way to cope with those emotions. I didn't read poetry as much as I listened to it. I listened to bands like The Doors or Pink Floyd. I found them inspiring because their music could take on different meanings. I used to write a short poem every day. It would be two stanzas at the most. But I stopped writing poetry a long time ago. I ran out of things to say. I've grown up since then, and I'm still living in uncertain times. I was tempted to write my own verse on the wall. I thought to use red marker so that people would know it was someone else. I had a fantasy that others, like myself, would read this poem and add their own verse. I imagined the wall behind the urinal would be covered in pages and graffiti. In the end, I chickened out. 
because I didn't want to deface school property and get in trouble. About a week later, the poem had been washed off the wall. It was a missed opportunity. I got the idea to share this poem with some people in my class, and we wrote our own verses. We would all have a small taste of immortality. Corporations would prefer that you, my friend, were insecure, and to that end they would infer that you're the disease and they the cure. Take it easy, watch it burn. You think you're loud, but this is pure. My grandma is a mystery to me and always has been. I've only seen her a handful of times a year despite living fairly close to each other, yet one thing that is guaranteed is that she always brought over the best boxes of Krispy Kreme glazed donuts every time. Frances Trevino is a woman that typically keeps to herself, and I never did quite understand what her deal is or what role she played in my life. For the longest time, I always called her aunt when I was younger since I hardly saw her and didn't match her to the grandma I know and love like the grandma from my mother's side. It was impossible to know what she was up to since she never told us, and with all nine of her kids being grown adults that lived on their own, it's almost as if she's finally glad to get hers back. The small information I did know about my grandma was always a story from my mother or a conversation among my dad and uncles that I most likely wasn't supposed to be a part of. I remember one day during the summer, it was a very slow day and that was the definition of uneventful. My brothers were watching the Sox game and my mom must have been off doing stuff around the house when out of nowhere my grandma barges through the door with her signature perfume that smelled like cherry blossoms and a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. There was no special occasion and to my knowledge my dad wasn't coming home anytime soon since 8 times out of 10 that's why she'd be at our house in the first place. She said that she was in the mood to visit the family which threw everyone off. Everyone knows my dad is one of her favorite kids, if not the favorite, but this surprise visit is something out of left field for everyone. When grandma comes over, everyone knows to sit around the table and wait for the conversation to take off, but this one felt different. This one in particular made me feel like a real adult for once in my life. When she asked me what I was up to, it made me very proud to be able to say that I was about to start college doing what I love, audio engineering. My grandma always called me her little Elvis since I have black hair and was born on the same day as Elvis Presley, January 8th. So it was damn near the first time I've ever heard my grandma excited and proud for my sake. My brothers and I learned about a family member that made a living off being a musician in Nashville, Tennessee for 40 years. She always knew that music ran in the family, yet never spoke about it until now. She talked about how much she loved to dance and all the different type of music she encountered, which is a ridiculously huge library of songs she knows by heart. For hours, we just talked about anything and everything that came to mind while eating the best donuts ever. I never talked to my grandma so much in my life until that day and it made me appreciate the visits even more. 
And that was the last conversation I had with my grandma before she passed away. COVID came around and the first batch of vaccines came two months too late. It was the first time I've ever heard my dad cry and before I knew it, I would join him despite barely having any memories of her. It makes me sad to think that she never got to see how far I've come since that conversation. I wanted to tell her how I'm doing in school, how I'm in a motorcycle riding group with my dad and his friends, and how I write stories for class instead of a boring math and science class. I absolutely hate that this has to be the topic of a story, but after getting to know my grandma over those donuts, I'm sure she'd be proud of her little Elvis. I was prepared to let my dad die. I ran out of the bathroom, flew open the front door, and started sprinting down the road, as far from the house as I could. But there was no way I could save him, not from the demonic presence in the mirror. Once I heard him say her name three times, I knew he was a goner. There's no surviving Bloody Mary. A fear of heights and spiders and snakes and clowns, those all make sense. I completely understand why those are terrifying. I should be terrified of these things, but I'm not. Even the super scary threats like Texas Chainsaw or Freddy Krueger, I guess I just don't find them scary. And I think I know why. There isn't a superstition involving these terrifying things. I don't feel like I'm inviting in the fear. That is why I am terrified by Bloody Mary. You invited her in. You pretty much said, hey, it's okay to kill me now. And although my logic and 19 years of experience on this planet can tell me that Bloody Mary doesn't exist, deep, deep down, I believe it does. Bloody Mary actually is a pretty simple ritual, which might have helped her become so popular back in the early 2010s. You go into a bathroom, shut the door, turn off the lights, light a candle, and say Bloody Mary three times into the mirror. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Then she is supposed to appear. I have never tried the ritual. I'm very familiar with it though. When I was 11 or 12, I would watch countless videos of people testing the Bloody Mary ritual. Now imagine a gullible 12 year old in the very early days of YouTube with little knowledge about special effects or editing. I have to say some of the videos were pretty convincing. My logical side and curiosity side were fighting every night. So I decided to put the ritual to a test, but not me, never me. So who would do it? My dad would. I asked him to go into the bathroom and do this ritual. So there I was far down the street thinking my dad was dead. But of course he comes out. He said he performed the ritual and that nothing happened. I felt relief for a moment. This was finally the proof I needed. But over time, I convinced myself that he did the ritual wrong. That's why it didn't work. Maybe he didn't light the candle. Maybe he said her name four times. So till this day, I have questioned if Bloody Mary really lives behind the mirror. I guess I will just need to try it to figure out. Okay, I'm in the bathroom and here I go. It's pretty terrifying. Um. I have my candle lit, lights are off. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. 
Yeah, nothing. Nothing happened. Literally nothing. It is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. I hate that saying. I don't know who came up with it, but obviously they were never 17 and an idiot. Goggles are a term used to describe the lowering of standards when one is seeking a romantic partner whilst attending a summer camp. When you're stuck in the woods with around 50 other people for an entire summer, a solid mm, six starts to look like a real hot and sexy ten. When you combine that with being an insecure teenager, you accidentally fall in love with a goon like Henry Johnson. I turned 17 the summer I told him I loved him, though it had been building up for years before that. I was the nature specialist at a Catholic youth organization summer camp, and he was my lodge leader. He was a couple years older, not enough to make it illegal, but enough to make it dramatic. He was silly, sweet, and honestly pretty bad at his job. It was like a poorly written YA novel. We met when we were campers together. I thought he looked like my favorite book character, and he thought I was a gross little kid. By the time he was a counselor and I was a CIT, I was infatuated with him. Always sitting at his table or asking to be assigned to his cabin, I was the farthest thing from subtle. And now, I was living with him. Together, we made up the mighty men of Tonga. That was our lodge name. It was domestic bliss, in a way. And then, it all hit the fan. The problem started that summer when Henry and I became actual friends. We were choosing to hang out with each other even when not made necessary by our job. We would spend all day together and then text all night. I had so desperately wanted him to love me, and now I felt that he did. But this story isn't about how I got him to love me. This is about the day I chose to stop being in love with him. Henry and I had gotten close so close that I finally saw him as a person. A person I could love, but not someone I could be in love with anymore. I remember the day clearly. I was on break, having a run-of-the-mill gossip session with my fellow Tonga counselor, Brendan, when Brendan said, I think as a joke, you know Henry knows you're in love with him, right? And 
all I could say was, I'm not. I'm not in love with him anymore. And then I started sobbing. After crying together for a little too long, Brendan and I had a plan. I would corner Henry during laser tag and ask him to talk to me before dinner. Seriously talk to me. I was ready to throw up and die by the time I asked him, and he was so confused, bless his heart, but he agreed. We needed to talk. We could both feel the dynamic had changed. And now we get to the most embarrassing thing I have ever done. I waited for him outside the dining hall, ready to just let him have it. I mean, I was really going to lay into him. I saw him run up and I clenched my fists. There was more to it than me just not loving him anymore. I mean, he was manipulative. He used my feelings against me to get me to do his work for him. I mean, how dare I let this lazy, immature dork with curly brown hair and sea green eyes and just the cutest little laugh. Oh, God, Caroline, focus up. I mean, he is just some guy. It's it's the camp goggles talking. You're not thinking straight. You're not actually attracted to this this dude. I mean, he is just so... I collected my thoughts. It was showtime. But before I could get a single, well-rehearsed word in, he says, So you're going to pour your heart out to me? I was devastated, extremely confused, and devastated. I mean, was he really making fun of me right now? Did Brendan say something to him behind my back? I mean, he must have. I I was so taken aback that all of the words I had practiced over and over again just disappeared from my mind. And instead, I just blurted out, I don't love you anymore. Obviously, he was shocked. I had never said the L word to him, and for all I know, he thought it was just a little crush. But I guess my taste in men isn't too terrible, because he took it seriously. He said, Okay. We talked a little more, and I got to see things from his point of view. He did share some of the feelings, but there was an age gap, and he wasn't into that. He told me he was sorry for leading me on and using me to slack off at his job, which I will admit I was more than happy to help with. I told him I was sorry if I ever made him feel uncomfortable. The conversation it was awkward because, well, We were awkward, but it was good, and it was about to end great before he said the thing that will always haunt me. I love you, dude. Like a little sister. 
And if that's not enough to make you want to crawl inside your own body and die, I shook his hand and asked him to be my friend. I think we were both praying for the rapture to happen then and there. I don't cry over Henry anymore, but if I think about that conversation too hard, I will have a mental breakdown. My sister and I were playing in the living room. David, Katie, come here for a second. We ran into the kitchen where our father had just called us. Say, there's going to be a model train show at the fairgrounds this weekend. Would you two like to go see it? My mom and dad were sitting at the kitchen table and they were looking at some kind of ad in the newspaper. What do you say? Does that sound like something you might want to do? You know, I had a model train kit when I was a kid. I grew up in the 1980s in a suburb that was built in the 1950s. My parents had bought a modest three-bedroom ranch house in this neighborhood a few years ago when they decided they wanted to start a family. Katie and I were about two years apart, and we had another little sister on the way. I was six years old. My dad had a respectable job working as an electrical engineer at the Snap-on Tools headquarters, and my mom used to be a teacher. My parents had decided that they would go down to a single income so that my mom could stay home and help raise us kids. I am grateful for the decisions they made on how to raise us, but it definitely did mean that extravagant vacations were non-existent. Mostly our vacations were camping trips, but every month or two we'd have a fancy weekend and we'd go to one of the museums in the city. So what do you think? Should we go? (laughs) It was a no-brainer. That weekend an enormous building lay before us as we walked from our parked car. I felt like I'd never seen a building so large. And inside was the 1985 National Model Railroad Association Convention. The NMRA rotated each year to a different location, and this year it was in Milwaukee for eight days. I didn't know it at the time, but it wouldn't return to Milwaukee until 2010. We step up to the admissions booth, my mom and dad give each other a smile, and we pay our entrance fee. There were so many displays, so many booths, so many layouts that I felt like it wouldn't end. You could clearly see hobbyists bustling about, cleaning up their engines and fixing track pieces. The trains were cool and all. It was fun to watch them go along their tracks and see all the different routes. But I found myself really drawn to all of the model towns that would surround these tracks. Finding all of these tiny little nooks and crannies where little plastic figurines would be fishing in acrylic rivers. Little tiny cars and trucks stopped at intersections with traffic lights that would blink on and off. I couldn't believe how realistic the gravel on the roads looked or how realistic the bushes looked on the hillsides. The really good ones would set up stories around their towns. At this point, the day was half over, and it was time for us to go back to the car to have our packed lunch that we brought with us. All right, looks like, Katie, you have your sandwich, and David, did you get your juice box from Mom? Yeah, got it. Thanks for making these sandwiches, huh? For my sister and I, a lunch break in the station wagon in the middle of the day on any of these excursions was pretty normal for us. 
My parents didn't really talk about it, but whenever the family went to a museum or any of these events, my sister and I definitely understood that the food provided in the cafeterias was too expensive. And usually my mom would say something about the sandwiches that we brought being more healthy anyway. And I have to say, ten years later, when we did start using the cafeterias and the food vendors, I, um... I sometimes miss those little moments of respite in the car. So, are you kids enjoying it? Yeah, it's pretty cool, Dad. Oh, really? What's What was uh, one of your favorite parts? Um, did you see that part where the guy was flying a kite in the field? How do they keep the kite up like that? Oh, yeah, that was pretty neat, wasn't it? I mean, I think they use wire for the string. That's how they can hold it up like that. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, I still have my old train somewhere in the basement. I bet you when we get home we could, um, kind of take it out and set it up. It's pretty old. It doesn't look as fancy as the stuff that we're looking at in here, but, um, I don't know. It could be fun. Yeah, that'd be awesome. The next day, my dad called me down to the basement. He'd found the old train set in a cardboard box, and we started to lay the tracks down on the ground. Everything was made of metal. The train cars, the track, the switches, even the dial that controlled the train's speed. All metal, with paint patterns that seemed to be stamped on. After about 20 minutes, we had everything connected and we plugged it in. We slowly started to turn the acceleration dial. I mean, honestly, it wasn't even a dial. It was a one-inch long metal arm that you would just kind of crank to the right. Immediately, I heard the engine start to hum the way spaceships sound in old science fiction movies. We continued to slowly move the handle, and the entire room started to smell like a broken space heater. But our train was moving on the track. It's a few weeks later, and my dad and I are in some kind of hobby shop. It wasn't a huge store. It was honestly just some hobby shop in a strip mall in a town that was, I don't know, half an hour away from ours. Back in the basement, it took my dad and I a few minutes to realize that the switch track pieces were not functioning correctly on the old train set. I guess my dad learned about some store where you could buy extra parts through the phone book. I honestly don't remember how long it took for us to get there. I just remember being in it. This place was different than the expo. I mean, it did have a little mini city with a train set up in the middle of the store. But there were millions of tiny little boxes, bags of static grass, I could tell this was the kind of place you went to get the parts to tell the stories. There were only a couple folks in the store, and since my dad was talking to the owner about the switch track pieces we needed, he, um, he let me walk around. I mean, it was unbelievable. I looked at foam tunnels, little kits to make shops, bags of assorted characters, maybe a vehicle or two about the size of a Hot Wheels car. And then I found the trees, flocked trees. These particular model trees were four to a box, they were a couple inches tall, and they looked so real. I mean, except for the plastic trunk, the uh, the branches were made out of wire and glue, and they must have had some kind of powder or substrate to look just like microscopic little leaves. I mean, you could do anything with these trees. You could set them up next to a building, you could put them along the track, you could set them alongside a road. No matter where you put them, they'd look so real. Maybe one day I could get a little road and do a stop sign with an intersection and put the trees along there. But of course, 
I was six years old and I didn't have any money. When you're six years old, your only currency is asking your parents for something. I stared at the box. I mean, it's not like these trees are critical. We're here to buy some parts to fix a track. I needed the courage to be able to ask Dad for these trees. Okay, Dave, let's head out. Okay, I need to do it now. I know it won't upset him, I just... I just don't want the moment to pass. Everything's a blur. I walk up to my dad, I take his hand. We're leaving the building, we're walking to the car, we're in the car, we're driving in the car. A few miles down the road, my dad can hear sniffles from the back seat. Dave? Everything okay back there? <laughs> no. It's okay, what's wrong? I just really wanted to ask if I could get those trees. The trees you were looking at in the back there? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think they're really cool. I see. My dad hits the blinker and turns into a parking lot to turn around. Well, we should probably go take a look at him then. I try to regain my composure and I wipe a couple tears off my cheeks, but I can't stop a few more coming out. I'm not sad that I didn't get the trees. I'm sad that I didn't have the initiative to speak up in the moment. I'm a little embarrassed that my dad heard me crying in the back, and I'm even more worried that he might think that I was crying to get his attention. Four three-inch tall pine trees. As it turns out, they were actually a little bit more expensive than the little track pieces we bought earlier, but um, my dad asked me what I was interested in, and I brought them right to the back of the store. You know, I set those trees up every single time I played with that train set. I used them when I had to make dioramas later on in grade school. I used them as set pieces when I was making little films with my toy dinosaurs in junior high on my Hi8 camera. About eight years later, two of them had broken, but one made its way into my mom's Christmas village, and the last one made it to my college dorm room. The second time, my dad asked me what I was interested in. Rob worked as an aircraft mechanic for the same flight department for 45 years. It was his only job he has ever had since college, and he was damn good at it. He retired two weeks ago with plans to become a freelance mechanic, at least to keep him busy. His first Sunday morning as a free man was spent in a coma while his kids were flying in to spend a family-filled week with their father. He suffered a stroke that morning, which caused his heart to stop beating for many minutes before help arrived. This is even more traumatizing when you take into account that brain damage happens to the victim in sheer minutes, if not revived immediately. He was, though, revived and then put into a medically induced coma when he got to the hospital. This was to prevent any further brain damage. But at that time, they didn't know how long he was unconscious for. After two failed attempts and a few days later to pull him out of his coma, we lost hope. Rob was a part of a very small workforce. Everyone who worked with him at the same location were family friends. This made it even more emotionally challenging for everyone when the family started considering funeral arrangements for a man who was supposed to have decades of time left with the ones he loved most. 
I've never seen a religious family lose so much faith in the world so quickly. A few days ago, Rob emerged from his coma after plants of pulling the cord. He lied in bed all day, too weak to speak, and needed assistance eating. All of his family and friends made it into Illinois and took turns visiting him while his unpredictable recovery begins. As of the other day, he was able to speak slowly and produce basic sentences with the ability to recognize his wife and kids. Two things the doctor said were unlikely to happen. Enjoy the time with the ones you love most, as you never know when it might be the last. I bought my first bra when I was only eight years old. Crazy young, I know. I started developing way before all my friends. I felt a bit gross and strange. I didn't know why their bodies looked so different than mine or why the way that grown-up men looked at me was so different all of a sudden. I knew I wanted to do something about this development, literal development, so I asked my mom if she would take me to buy a bra. She took me to the store Soma. I was so horrified at all the black and white pictures of older models scantily clad. It smelled like Werther's Originals and a Bath and Body Works candle that gives you a bit of a headache. We were immediately greeted by a far too cheery sales lady who asked if we needed any help finding anything. My mom, to my horror, loudly announced that I was there to buy my first ever bra. I wanted to shrink into my shoes and cry. Other kids my age were playing on the playground. Why do I have to be standing in this stuffy store surrounded by plaid maternity pajama pants? The lady was all too enthused to hear this news and asked me questions about cut and sizing that sounded like gibberish to me. She brought me into a dressing room and instructed me to take off my shirt so she could measure me. This was terrifying, but I did not seem to have a choice. She then brought me a collection of the most horrifying bras I have ever seen. Multicolored paisley A-cups looked me dead in the eyes and I wanted to hide more than ever in my life. The sales lady helped me put on the bra. She told me I was doing it wrong and she showed me the scoop method. She did this by taking her cold, clammy old lady hands and scooping out my breast buds so they filled to the top of the cup and spilled over. I did not recognize my reflection in the mirror. I was eight years old. I should be learning how to spell bicycle, not being taught the scoop method by someone 50 years my senior. I thanked her quickly and I threw back on my shirt, scurrying out of the dressing room. I shoved the most plain bra I could find at my mom and I told her I was ready. She purchased the bra and the sales ladies all congratulated me. My mom tried to insist I should carry the Soma bag out of the store, but I refused. But today, I should probably call my mom. Say thank you.
Have you ever had a panic attack? Because I have. It was only once, but it was interesting enough that I remember it fondly. It was only a couple months ago. I was sitting inside the student center of my college, and I was having a Zoom online class. As usual, it was boring, and the only thing I could do was listen while trying not to fall asleep. Also, side note. For those who don't know, I wear glasses, but staring at a screen for three hours with them on can give me a headache, so I had them off. This is an important detail for this story, but anyways, back at it. As I was listening to my teacher talk, I decided to take some notes. Apparently, whatever she said, I found important. So I went to dig inside my bag for my notebook. As I reached into the backpack, I saw something move. Mind you, I am half blind at this point, so everything is a blur. But one thing is clear. It was big, brown, and had more than four legs. Yep, you guessed it. It's a freaking spider. I immediately jumped from my chair and started to panic. Oh my god, there is a spider in my bag. What do I do? Who do I tell? Do I get help? Where did it come from? How long was it in my bag? How long did I get it around? Was it in my house? Was it in my bed? Was it in my hair? <sighs> my brain was in panic mode. My body felt as if it was racing in a marathon and I couldn't breathe. I look around and see strangers looking at me. People I didn't know and that I couldn't identify because guess what? I didn't have my glasses on. I ask with a trembling voice, There's a spider in my back. Can someone please help me? I have arachnophobia and I don't know what to do. At this point, I'm in tears. The first guy looks back at his computer as if I didn't exist. The second guy, however, gets up and heads my way. My knight in shining armor. He grabs my bag, shoves it lightly to the side, and as the bag falls over, a brown spider crawls out. And before I can panic again, he smashes it with his foot. In tears, I tank him, and trembling, I take my bag back. My class was still going on in the background as I started to come down. Thank God my camera was off. I start to pack my stuff and hatch my next class. Still shaking and trembling with few tears going out of my eyes. Thankfully, I found my friends later who got me to calm down. I still don't know who was the man who helped me. It's not like I could see his face. And I don't think he ever told me his name. But whoever you are, thank you. When I was in Nigeria, my brother gave me a song and everything changed. The origin story of Osu North is a lot to unpack. This is the journey of connecting and explaining the deeper philosophy about black art. Okay, so at the time, I didn't really know too much about like mixing or anything like that. So I got the um, instrumental. I looked up the instrumental on YouTube at first and then i was like oh dang like i want to record over this and i remember at the time i was watching like i had um damn this is so crazy but 
I used to be a really, really big fan of this YouTube rapper. His name was D Pride. He's like a Canadian, like Asian. I haven't even thought about this guy in years, but D Pride, okay. But he had a video where he like showed his like at home recording setup, and that's what opened my eyes to be like, oh damn, this is not actually not that technical. Like, I thought I had to get a big studio to like put a song out. But he had he literally had a mic and a computer, and the same mic he had, I went to Best Buy, I saw it there, and I got it. I never saw the urgency of an origin story until now. The thought of self-proclaiming myself to be this big artist is kind of performative. In Chicago, it's one of those things where if you know, you know. I talked with the group in class and they reminded me how the rise of Osa North may be a good story after all. For me, one of the most defining moments in my career was when I heard my brother's rendition of Hodia by Egyptian. For the first time, I remember thinking to myself, this sounds incredible. Wow, we could do this? At first, it was just kind of magical to hear myself. Like, I was like, damn, this is so crazy. I didn't know nothing about mixing. I didn't know anything about... Yeah. I was just like MacGyvering, trying to just figure it out as I go. Um, but yeah, that's how it like happened. That's yeah. how it came about. So I haven't released something in a while, but I'm working on a lot of new music I'm really excited about for the summer. So. We all come from different backgrounds. There's a universal theme in everyone's journey where you were like, oh snap. Today, I have music on Spotify, iTunes, Fox News, and WCRX FM. Hey dad. Wait, is this that same song that we were listening to that one time you picked me up from school back in kindergarten? You took the whole drive home talking to me about how great you thought their music was and how you miss the old days, even though I was just five years old. But I miss the old days too. A lot has happened lately. I'm still in school, and don't be surprised because you know how much I enjoy learning. Yeah, I've been struggling with this one class that has to do with ecosystems or something like that. I have no idea what I'm doing there, but I got this. I also already chose my classes for the fall semester. Can you believe I'm going to be a senior soon and graduate from college? I know, right? It's crazy how time flies. Remember how every first day of school, ever since kindergarten, you and my mom would always take me to the main entrance of the building? Even though you guys would embarrass me, I wish you would continue doing so. It wasn't easy growing up and becoming an adult. You once told me every penny counts and now I believe it. Not only am I in school, but I'm also working a part-time job. It's not the best, but it gets my stuff paid for. I've been juggling that all stuff lately, and I'm all over the place, but somehow I always get through it. I also got some good news. Well, depending how you want to take it, but I think you'll be fine with it. So you know how I told you that I wouldn't get married until I was like 30? Well, I'm married now. Wanna know with who? No, no, not the guy with green hair. It's the guy who would bike it all the way from Elmwood Park to Gage Park and back. I honestly didn't think we would last together. We were both so young and naive. He proposed to me outside of my graduation ceremony, literally minutes after I had graduated. The craziest part out of all of this is that once I turned 18, I moved in with him. We had a moment at Six Flags that he asked me, hey, let's move in together. And me being so young, I was like, sure, let's do it. 
So then I went home and told my mom, hey mom, I'm moving in with him. And well, she gave me the whole talk about how, oh, he better treat you right, this and that. I love him, and so far everything's going better than expected. I know he loves me, but you were the first one to show me what real love was. It's been four years, Dad, since I last spoke to you. And I know that you're listening to me now, as I drive to see you. Not literally see you, but what was left of you. I miss you more than life itself, but I know that God had his reasons for taking you away from me. I brought you flowers and started to place them on your grave as we both listened to our favorite song. I'll never forget you, and I'll always have you in my heart, Dad. I, I never really wanted to go into journalism or like photography as a kid. Like I wanted to become a painter or like an animator. Um, but I, I knew I wanted to do like something creative. My name is Pat Nabong and I'm a visual journalist at the Chicago Sun-Times. When I was in high school, my dad got into photography and he was interested in bird photography. And he kind of like introduced me to the camera and taught me the basics. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoy kind of learning that photography wasn't just like a mechanical process and that you could do a lot with it. And it really opened my eyes to my environment. I was very sheltered as a kid and like as a student in high school so photography was kind of like this excuse to like explore my surroundings and like go to different places. I enjoyed like being able to express my creativity and like you know kind of spend time with my dad in that way. Um, we bonded a lot over like cameras and like gear and you know like going on trips to do like photo walks. I wasn't sure at that time yet that I wanted to focus on photojournalism. I was more kind of like, oh, like I want to make this flower look pretty or like, you know, I want to try like fashion photography. And like I was, you know, trying all these different things, which was really fun. Um, that whole like exploration phase. Um, and then found that like my personality and like my you know I don't really like directing people like unlike in fashion photography and like filmmaking there's a lot of like stand this way or you know you have to like set up lights and like do stuff like, like I really enjoyed just like kind of standing back and like letting the scene unfold and capturing like whatever I see I think I'm naturally drawn to stories that revolve around like social justice and like raising awareness on social issues that people don't often hear about or um, kind of like providing like a different angle to stories that have been done before and but the work that I do at the Sun-Times, like most of the stories I get are involving those kinds of topics. Five years ago, I would have said, you know, my role as a journalist is to like 
make the world a better place and like use my photography to like change the world and like I still hope to do that like I still that's still something that I strive for that like my work would become like impactful enough to like um help change policy or you know make impactful change but I think right now like for me like realistically I believe like my role as like a photojournalist in the city is to visually raise awareness and interpret the news um, as imp- impactfully as I can with the awareness that <laughs> it's a whole system, you know, like that a photo, it's very hard for like a photo to change an entire system. And, you know, you I kind of, you know, like I wish I could, but I think just looking at things realistically, it's like I what I hope for that I feel like is achievable um, is that hopefully like my photographs give readers a better understanding of what's happening. And I'm hoping that with my photography, that kind of expands like their vision and their worldview because that's what photography did for me. My father has always allowed himself one vice in his lifetime. Not gambling, not alcohol, not shoplifting. Comic books. I would say that currently I have anywhere between 10 to 15,000 comic books. They are his escape. He started collecting them when he was eight years old. Every Wednesday, he would get five to 10 comics, bring them home, and read them cover to cover. Now, he's 54, and the cycle is still going strong. 48 years worth of comics. Many would throw them out or sell them, but he kept them. But why? I was hoping that someday I'd be able to pass those down to you and your brother, to where hopefully someday that legacy could continue that you'd pass them down to your kids. Other families have a crest or jewel heirlooms. These comics are our heirlooms. I would never ask my dad, what do you want to be done with your body after you die? Instead, it would be, what do you want to be done with the comics after you die? The answer to that is... I will inherit 5,000 comics. My brother will get the other half, but they will not leave the family. Every summer for 10 years, my dad would bring out the boxes and boxes of comic books he had in the storage unit and transport them to our small condominium so they could be clean and inspected. The boxes had multiple uses, makeshift headboard, a stepping stool to the window for our cats, or a simple ottoman. But when you open them up, you have a treasure trove of superheroes. He did this so we felt comfortable with the overwhelming amount of them. He also did this so we knew how to take care of them. The books are taken care of by placing the comic books directly into a bag with the cardboard backing. Those bags are then put into boxes, and those are cardboard boxes that usually hold anywhere between 100 to 150. And those boxes are stored at a facility that is climate controlled to help keep it from getting any moisture that could damage the books. My summer job was to take one or two long boxes, sit down, and sort and package each and every one of those books. Batman, Captain America, X-Men, X-Men, X-Men. Jesus Christ, why do we have so many X-Men? The 90s were crazy. 
The last summer I sorted and packaged books was by my own account. They were just work. They were pieces of paper with funny characters. I felt no connection with them. Why will I have to be stuck with them when Dad dies? I was fed up. I wanted these comics out of my life. I could feel my dad's heart break when I told him that. The last thing you want is for your child to reject an heirloom. Something that is a piece of you. When I came to Chicago, I was so intimidated. Everyone was so talented and so interesting. I was lost. What makes me special? People would ask about my life and I would simply answer, I'm just an Ohio girl. How could I sound more boring? Talking with film people, Marvel and DC are bound to come up. All the guys would talk about the Batman or the latest movie in the MCU. I tried to join them and one of them said, what do you know about comics? It clicked. What do I know about comics? I realized that no matter how much I wanted to reject those books, they'd come back. They're my childhood. They are a part of me. And later down the road, they are going to be mine. And my kids are going to inherit them. And their kids. And their kids. They aren't work. They are an escape. Worlds upon worlds I couldn't wrap my head around. Every frame a piece of art. Why did I push them away? What do I know about comics? My family owns... 10 to 15,000 comic books. If you asked my mother now, this story never happened. Which, go figure, after two Xanax and one margarita... I wouldn't remember anything either. We were preparing to fly back home to Texas after my orientation at Columbia College Chicago. Before we even got to O'Hare Airport, getting on the train was… a lot. My mom is infamous for having claustrophobia, and if you've ever stepped foot near a Chicago train, there is rarely a spot to be spared. It was her living hell. Once we shuffled on the train and passed a few stops, the golden opportunity in the shape of a blue seat blessed our vision. I let her take it, seeing she was as pale as the snow, and the moment she popped a squat, she was arms deep in her bag. She asked to borrow my water, took out her secret stash in a grandma pill case, and popped half a Xanax. When we got to the airport, my mom was visually calmer, but nothing that would be too conspicuous to the average airport security. We find our gate and mom takes another pill to celebrate. Right when we get comfortable, bad news struck. Flight 319 from Chicago to Houston has been delayed. My mom takes another Xanax for the patients. So we strolled around to find sustenance, we find a Chili's and my mom orders some chips and salsa. The hour flew by, pun intended. And while I stood at the gate, my mom decided it was a good time to use the John. I'm getting a little nervous standing in line waiting for her because boarding group one happens, then boarding group two happens, boarding group three is announced, our group, Right when panic sets in, I see a hand waving from a few yards away. My mom is 
power walking in my direction with a big smile on her face and a margarita in her hand. Crap. We shuffle through the plane and find our seats, me in the window and her in the aisle. She makes no hesitation in making that cabin her home. She pulls the tray table down, pops open our leftovers. She even asks the flight attendant for some napkins. After finishing the marg in record time, the PA dings saying we're getting ready for takeoff. My mom is the exact opposite of ready for takeoff. Tray table still down, seat back sitting in sharp recline, and phone very much on and in use. I have to grab the chips from the table my mom has made into a baby tray while she's asking me to set up her iPad to watch Ron White. The cabin lights go down and the plane turns onto the runway. Right before the motor kicks in, I hear, Hello? Can you hear me? This woman starts a phone call with her boyfriend right when we are taking off. John? John? Yes, I'm on the plane. At this point, I've given up. I bow my head and hope no one hears. I can't hear you, John. I think he hung up on me. After I finish setting up her iPad and put my headphones on, I hope I can just zone out and let the flight go on. Of course, I get tapped. Where are the chips? I set up the chips, put my headphones back on, get tapped. Where's the salsa? I get her the salsa, put my headphones back on, get tapped again. What, Mom? I love you, baby. I love you too, Mom. It's one of those experiences where I had to repeat, in the morning, this will all be a funny memory. My skin felt hot. I could snap at any moment, but there's something kind of special about taking care of your mother. I had to practice patience, take a deep breath, and channel my inner caregiver. I was grateful to think about all the times she did things like this for me, having a meltdown in the grocery store or getting the flu my senior year. She takes care of me. I guess I can take care of her. We landed in Texas safe and sound and met my brother at passenger pickup. I sat in the front and turned the radio low to let mom sleep in the back seat. My brother asked me how the flight was. I laughed and said, fine, but you're taking care of her when we get old. What a great run of stories this semester. Thanks to all the students for their hard work. Lillian Wade. Caroline Herriter, Lauren Holt, Trent Sprague, Phoebe Kosnitz, Zachary Kolpus, David Geisler, Osin North, Robert Amon, Gosme Cruz, Marilyn Roa, Davis Bryant, Shelby Steele. I'm Dave Berner, Associate Professor in the Communication Department, and you've been listening to the Radio Storytelling Showcase, Spring 2022 edition of WCRX.